0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. The next
1: two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do, a time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I am Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay, Rav, it's time for you to tell us uh, all about your chat room and provide one of those welcoming invitations that you're so good at doing.
2: Well, welcome, everybody. Do come join me in the chat room. It is an amazing group. Actually, you know, if you weren't in the chat room last week, you really, really missed out because Julie was in the chat room at the same time and posting tips and questions and links and, you know, a whole bunch of extra stuff. So there is a great deal of value of being in the chat room, apart, of course, from chatting with me and the other roomies there. So do join us. That's ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat.
1: All right. Now, you know, I've got to make a special shout out today. Uh, you know, I'm, we're over here in Spokane, Washington, uh, the broadcast comes live out of Seattle, and you know who won the Super Bowl, don't you? The marvelous Seattle Seahawks. Great job, Hawks, and enjoy today's big parade. All right, every week we feature a spotlight segment, and in this week's Spotlight of the Week, we're examining the idea of how God changes brains. The word God is an interesting word, for perhaps more than any other word in any language, it stands out as potentially involving a greater number of meanings and of emotional responses than all others. For some, the word invokes hope, love, and peace, and for others, it is a reference to nonsense, superstition, mental weakness, and for still others, the word elicits fear, anger, and perhaps even hatred. The ways we understand God inherently give rise to the meaning of God. For spiritual and religious people, it is their personal understanding of God that forms the basis for the purposes in their lives. Indeed, the purpose-driven life is derived directly from our opinion of an afterlife. Either you only go around once, or there is much more to life that may meet the eye. Now, an interesting inquiry of late that has been carried out by several different neuroscientists in a variety of experimental settings involves the use of sophisticated technology for evaluating changes in the brain due to religious and spiritual practices. In past shows, we have discussed the predisposition that humans appear to have hardwired in the brain that gives rise to our need to believe. The Believing Brain. We have evaluated this from both the theistic perspective and from the agnostic view, and that's exactly what Michael Shermer brought to the show when we discussed his book, The Believing Brain. Now, last week, I came upon a really interesting study carried out by Dr. Andrew Newberg and his team. What they did was borrow a popular meditation technique from the American tradition of Kundalini Yoga, known as Curtin Kriya. They secularized the technique by informing participants that they were to make these sounds in a repeated fashion in order to assist in self-training of valued meditation practice. Their subjects were older volunteers, and the preferred subject was someone who had experienced occasional memory loss, the type typical uh, to aging. They divided subjects into two groups. One group was told to listen to music for 12 minutes a day for 8 weeks. The other group was told to repeat these sounds. Sa-ta-na-ma. Sa-ta-na-ma. They were to say them aloud for 2 minutes, then whisper them for 2 minutes, then repeat them silently for 4 minutes, and then whisper them for 2 minutes, and finally to speak them aloud again for the final 2 minutes. Now, they were to make finger movements as well while repeating the sounds. So they would begin by touching their forefinger to the thumb when they said sa. And then their index finger with ta, and the ring finger with na, and their little finger with ma. Sa, ta, na, ma. If you're out there, you can just do that. Forefinger, you know, middle. Here we go. Sa, ta, na, ma. All right. 12 weeks later, their brain scans were compared with their pre-test and with the music group. There was no change for those listening to the music, but some pretty substantial changes for those who practiced this meditation exercise. Now, again, this exercise is considered by at least one master to be the exercise. You know, should you choose to learn only one. But our group didn't have this knowledge. The sata is a mantra and the finger movement is known as a mudra but the experimental group did not know that they were actually employing an important religious practice. To them, this was a secular exercise with simple sounds to assist in focusing on developing a meditation practice. In actuality, there is a meaning to those four Sanskrit words. In order, they mean birth, life, death, and rebirth. So what were the findings? The experimental group showed great increases in activity in the frontal lobe, and these changes endured over time. The frontal lobe is, of course, what we use for focused attention. They also found significant differences in the thalamus. This, to me, is very interesting. The thalamus has two sides, and initially the subject showed activity in one side, but following the experiment the subjects thalamic activity had shifted to the opposite side suggesting that somehow this exercise had fundamentally rewired the way the brain operated now the subjects were also given a number of psychological tests including tests for verbal memory visual attention and task switching the subjects in the experimental group once again showed significant improvement in all of these tests indeed Cognitively, the meditation group performed on average about 10% better after the eight weeks of training. Not only that, but their experience of life changed as well. They became emotionally happier, experiencing 50 to 20% less depression, anxiety, fear, and so forth. This finding implicates changes in the limbic system. So now here's the question. To some religious people, the Sanskrit words, satanama, have meaning and power. As such, there are those who suggest that this experiment was not truly a secular experiment at all. The words themselves invoked a special spiritual power. Now, this is not uncommon where sacred languages are concerned. The sacred letter energies one encounters in Kabbalah, for example, have not only meaning, but power. So to utter the sound is to invoke a power or call upon a force of some kind. For the Babylonians, the word sesame invoked a power derived from sesame oil. So maybe that's why we oil our doors. open. So what would happen if you truly secularized this practice and used something like uh, do re da la or da la do re? Your thoughts on this one, Rav? Uh, You do have some special insights since this meditation practice has a Sikh origin. Is there power in the words or do you think this was a secular experiment? And one more thing. If you can truly gain this level of change in the brain through this one activity carried out purportedly as a secular activity, what kind of changes could you get? if deep religious practices of this kind were undertaken for years?
2: Well, I found the research fascinating for lots of different reasons. You know, I've heard of the meditation before, Satanama, and to me, I've always found it amusing because that immediately calls, you know, to me, the word satnam, which is a Sikh word. It is the second word of the Mool Mantra, which is the very basic prayer that all Sikhs are taught. So, you know, to me, it it was just a distortion of a traditional Sikh phrase. So I went looking it up, and yes, it was uh, something that Yogi Harpejian Singh started. He was the Kundalini yoga master. He came out in the 80s that I'm familiar with. Um, you know, I used to attend the Sikh temple, and there were lots of American Sikhs that started coming along. It was like Yogi Bhajan Singh had taken the religion to America, opened it up, and lots of people started following him. And I have the greatest respect for American Sikhs. I think they're fabulous, fabulous people, so I'm not making any judgments on them at all. But when you take something that should be satnam, and then make it satanama, and then change the meaning, because satanam really means the true name, or God is truth, is how I was taught. But when you distort it like that, you know, I start questioning more and more. So I looked it up, and they talked about Girtan kriya. I'm familiar with Girtan, which is just the holy singing. In the temples, it's, the, it's part of the ho- holy service. Kriya, I was not familiar with, but then I looked that up, and that is to do with the different hand postures and stuff, which is not something that is done typically in the Sikh faith. Um, but then, when, I took it, when we took it further, and we start thinking about, okay, this was supposed to be secularized. Well, if the people participating in the experiment were told that you know sounds have a special kind of effect well then it's it's still not truly secularized because you have also implied that there is some spiritual connotation behind mm-hmm. it no,
1: no, not necessarily I, I i mean you could say i mean, would you say there's some spiritual con uh, connotation behind do re fa so no okay so I, no, I i i would i would stop you there and say no not necessarily
2: It depends how it's phrased. Okay, continue. I don't mean to cut off, but continue. As to why they were told to do this for meditation, you know, because there has been a great deal of work done. But The
1: lead author, Andrew Newberg, it was his team that did this, was very pointed in stating that it had been secularized. So this was given to them without, you know, any of the spiritual overtones.
2: I think what's happening is it's getting reported in different places and things get tweaked a little bit. I did go back to his actual paper and there wasn't anything in there that indicated that this was spiritual at all. So I think he is correct, but people want to assign different meanings to everything because the next thing I came to is, okay, you have taken Satnam and made it a, ma- a different kind of mantra, Sathanama. According to the paper, they also semi sung it as well. You know, so I think it was Sathanama, some variation of that is what mm. they did. And they have the hand movements as well. And that reminded me of something, you know, you cited in Gotcha as well, where they talked about the power of rituals. And the more steps there were to the rituals, the more powerful it became. So did Yogi Harbhajan Singh take some simple Sikh phrase and ritualize it and make it his own? So the question then becomes, could you take any such ritual, so just like you said, do, re, ta, la, whatever, and add in a few hand symbols and add in a few tones and add in a few other steps. Now, in some ways, that can sound a little bit ridiculous. However, we had an experience last year when we went to Zion's and we walked a l- labyrinth for the yep. first time. Um, now, I have always not thought very highly of people that walk labyrinths. It's like, you know, it it sounded silly Silly. to me. But we walked it. And one of the things that you find when you walk a labyrinth is that you cannot walk it with your head up looking ahead. You have to look down. You have to look at each step, which focuses your attention, and it does quiet the mind. I found walking the labyrinth very... A very spiritual experience. I found it very, very powerful. In fact, I'd like to build our own labyrinth here on our property if we possibly could. Um, but yeah, so the, the very process. So there's a whole number of different questions that, that can arise from this. Is it just the ritual? Can you design any ritual? Do you have to have some kind of belief behind it? You know, we, everyone's familiar with the power of placebo. Well, do you have to have some kind of belief if it's not the belief in a God, but a belief in the power of the ritual itself? So there is so much more research that could be done on this. I mean, I find it fascinating, but I don't think the answers are quite as simple as some of those who report them would like to say.
1: Well, the fact of the matter is I uh, I think there is a lot more research to be done. That's a given. Uh, the power of belief is incredible. We We both know that. Uh, the power of ritual is also incredible. The, the Sikh part, I you know, that's something I guess it you know doesn't concern me as much. I do think you could replicate this finding with four other symbols. Uh, I do believe that it is a matter of focused attention that brought this about. But it'd be really interesting to see what they did. Nevertheless. If you bring that religious intent, imagine that. I mean, this is this must be what the Tibetan monks are able to do. When you bring that religious intent, this focused attention, where you've really turned every and you make these kinds of, of brain changes uh, without it, imagine, just imagine what might happen if you were to do this kind of an exercise over a great period of time. Maybe you don't even need to bring the intent. Just, you know. I think okay. it's to do
2: with quietening the mind, the technique for quietening the mind. And whatever it takes to achieve that, the mind has great healing abilities of, it, of its own. It has great untapped abilities. You just quiet it down.
1: Maybe. All right. Yeah. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week, our show featured Julie Daniluk, and we discussed the problem of inflammation and the foods that aggravate it. Jerry wrote, loved your show today with Julie. Wow, is she ever knowledgeable? Thanks for sharing the wisdom. Danielle wrote, you have the most interesting variety of guests. Every week I tune in, not knowing what to expect, but always... Finding that it is time well invested. Thank you for such great shows. Emory wrote, your show is always so informative. I loved what Julie had to say. I have found several people who I pay close attention to now because I heard of them on your show. Jackie wrote, Provocative enlightenment is like a friendly classroom. I learned so much from your shows, I am so glad I found you. Well we're glad you did too, Jackie. And Sammy wrote, I absolutely love your books. I just finished reading Choices and Illusions and there were so many aha moments for me that it has really given me the motivation and means to change. I can't thank you enough. Well, you just did, Sammy. Now, I like to think there are radio shows, and then there is provocative enlightenment. Brian made this comment responding to my announcement about today's show. Quote, You really want to turn this show into a crazy cell cooking, eyeball popping, noodle bending, provocative hoo-ha. ha <laughs> Close quote. I love it, Brian. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your email to elden at com, or by joining me on Facebook. We can't get all of your letters on the air, but they do impact our programming. And once again, I both appreciate and thank you for your feedback and continued support. Now to this week's show. And I have been really looking forward to this one. We have a very special guest for you today. It seems, you know, I have always had a near insatiable appetite for learning that has led me to become a perpetual student. One of my joys today comes from the courses offered by the Teaching Company. Well, a few months back, I encountered today's guest in a wonderful course offered by the Teaching Company, also known as The Great Courses. And in this particular course, the course I'm speaking of, is titled The Meaning of Life, Perspectives from the World's Great Intellectual Traditions. I found this course to be the very best of kind that I had ever encountered, and it fully lived up to the praise given the great courses. I have listened to several of the great courses, and I consider today's guest to be the very best. Professor J.L. Garfield, and I'll see if I can get this said correctly, or close anyway, is Quan hun Chao, Professor of Humanities, and Head of Studies in Philosophy at Yale National University of Singapore College, Professor of Philosophy at the National University of Singapore, Recurrent Visiting Professor of Philosophy at Yale University, Doris Silbert Professor professor in the Humanities and Professor of Philosophy at Smith College, Professor of Philosophy at Melbourne University, and Adjunct Professor of Philosophy at the Central University of Tibetan Studies. He earned his Ph.D. in philosophy at the University of Pittsburgh. Professor Garfield teaches and pursues research in the philosophy of mind, foundations of cognitive science, logic, philosophy of language, Buddhist philosophy, cross-cultural hermeneutics, theoretical and applied ethics, and epistemology. Garfield's most recent books are Western Idealism and its Critics, Sweet Reason, A Field Guide to Modern Logic, and Indian Philosophy in English from Renaissance to Independence. His written works would take most of our two hours today if I continued, so instead, I'll save the time so he can share with us all. Okay, now we usually ask our guests for their three songs of life. There can be quite a bit of self-disclosure involved in this little exercise, so we would like to uh, get these three songs Um, And that way we get a a, a picture inside our man. Well, here is Professor Garfield's first. (laughs) ¶¶ Now, I happen to really love that one, too. That's summertime. We wanted to get it by Ray Charles, but I couldn't find Ray Charles' version of it. So, uh, welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Jay Garfield. Professor Garfield is in Singapore, where it is um, about 3.30 a.m. Yes, indeed. I show that he is connected, but... uh, we may have lost that connection. While well, we're working to get that reconnection. Let's go back to that brain study can, for a minute. I'll uh, let the I studio you let now. me know when they've got him back. Um, your uh, your thoughts about this uh, brain study, Ravinder? For all intent and purposes, uh, would suggest that you can just take and create a ritual. You can. Uh, call this ritual whatever you want to call it but the more we uh okay have we got uh professor garfield back professor garfield okay all right well we're we're still working on getting professor garfield back so at, at any rate ravinder your attitude uh and you know listen studio uh when you do get him back uh and kiera is our producer today when you do get him back kiera uh, just hold him until after the break, because we have a break that's about one one thirty away. Uh, so see if he can't get that connection. We'll bring him on right after the break. So now Ravinder, and, and if I've got you right, you believe that you can just invent uh, some kind of a, a special incantation. And uh, combine it with uh, a mudra, hand movement, and maybe sophisticate it by, you know, adding some body movement or some dance, mm-hmm. and and otherwise ritualize it. And in this, in this ritualization, as long as you don't let people know that you just invented it, you you marshal their belief behind it, and it's your thinking. If I understood you correctly, that that's going to work as well as the satanam.
2: Yes, I do. You know, you do have to have that belief behind it. So you want an elaborate ritual of some kind and then tell people that it has been shown already to have these wonderful effects, you know. So you can tell them it's, you know, it can be, it can be secular. You don't have to say that it's religious. You could, the religion can be science. It has been shown by science right now to be effective
1: that's a good one because that is becoming a religion all right we're going to be speaking with professor jay garfield as soon as we come back from the break hopefully we're not going to losing him again about the meaning of life uh, according to some very important perspective from the world's great intellectual traditions remember to join Ravinder and her team in the chat room you can do that by going to provocative forward slash chat do stay tuned you don't want to miss what's coming up after a few words from some of our friends
3: Do you feel like you've become lost in a funhouse? Only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto the path leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Elton Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions, now expanded, updated, and revised. It will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free from your current perceptions and begin your journey to how high is up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble.
0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
1: Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're about to bring Professor Jake Garfield in uh, to discuss the meaning of life. Professor, are you there? I am indeed. Oh, good, good, good. We, we really appreciate you staying up till I guess, what is it? It's about 3.30 a.m. in Singapore today, is it? It is Indeed. Okay, listen um, We played just before the break Your first song Which was Summertime And uh, the reason we get these songs Is they they generally give us A little bit of self-disclosure About who it is that we're dealing with Why is this song so
4: important to you? Oh gosh, that's been a favorite of mine For decades And when I think about it I think about a few things the first is the tremendous um, optimism of the song. Um, it's a song about growth and a song about uh, possibilities, but also the tremendous intimacy of the song. It's, after all, a lullaby sung to a baby, and that wonderful combination of intimacy and optimism just always melts my heart, that's all.
1: I love the song too. I love the song. It's a it's a great one. Listen, you heard the setup piece, I hope. Sata Nama. Are you familiar with this mantra and would you like to add anything to our discussion about it? Or the study I reported and or for that matter, the influence of religious practices on changing the brain.
4: Well, um, it's not a study with which I've been familiar with before. Um And it's not a mantra that I've known before either, but it is a mantra that, you know, one can imagine making perfect sense. Um, I'm not surprised by the result, but not for any kind of specifically religious reason. Um, After all, the whole idea in Indian religious and psychological traditions behind mantra is the idea that by reciting or by focusing on sound... We can fundamentally transform the way our um, our minds work, the way we perceive things. That's, of course, not surprising because, after all, right now uh, your listeners are listening to sounds, and we hope that those sounds are having some effect upon their minds. We know that sound has effect upon our minds. It's one of the reasons we listen to music as well. Uh, music affects our minds. So, in a funny way, the only big surprise in a study like that would be if there were no effect. And that has nothing to do with the religious content of a mantra. It just has to do with the fact that we expect the um, we expect sound to have a very deep effect on our brains. After all, we've evolved to be sonic language users. Um, our brains are wired to pay attention uh, to human sound, and a mantra is, in fact, human-produced sound. And so, none of that is um, none of that's awfully surprising. I don't think that tells us anything about You a particular religious tradition or what religious traditions uh, might be more effective or less effective than others, just that the um, Indian tradition was on to something uh, when they realized that focusing on sound could have profound effects on our minds. Right, right.
1: Okay, we like to know three things from our guest, Professor. Who is the messenger? (laughs) What is the message? And then how do we use it? So, if you will, tell us a little about yourself. What made you so passionate about what you do? And you must be passionate. And when did you realize that this was what you wanted in your life?
4: Gosh, that's a wonderful question. Um, I, I teach philosophy, and I, and I read philosophy, and I think about philosophy. And I often say um, quite sincerely that as a consequence, I've never worked a day in my life because I've never done anything that one would do, say only because someone pays you to do it. Um, I would, if I had a real job, I would certainly happily pay a lot of money to do what I do on vacation. Um, and I, um, I discovered my love for philosophy quite accidentally. So I'll tell you an embarrassing story to begin with. Uh, once upon a time, I was very young and very stupid. Now I'm just old and stupid. Um, and when I started my my college career. I kind of knew what I wanted to do, and that was I wanted to go into psychology. And so when I was trying to choose classes to take in my very first semester of college, I chose a whole bunch of psychology classes, and then I had to take something that was not in the psychology department. They wouldn't let me take all of my classes in the same department in my first semester, And I couldn't think of anything else in the entire college that looked vaguely interesting. Uh, I I was young, right? So I did what children have done for decades when going to college. I closed my eyes, opened the catalog, and told myself (laughs) that I would just take the first class that my finger fell on, and that would be it. And it was a philosophy class. And I looked at it and said, oh, my God, this looks so boring. But I made a promise to myself I can always drop the class. I'm going to attend the class. And um, I did, and it was kind of interesting. And then by about the third week, we started reading sections from David Hume's Treatise of Human Nature. Mm -hmm. And when we started reading Hume's discussion of the self and personal identity, um, I was so blown away, I was so astonished, and so enraptured. I said, I have to do this. I'm going to do philosophy. This is just, nothing has ever been this exciting to me. Uh, of course, I've had this lifelong love affair with you ever since then. But um, so, yeah, I decided I would study philosophy, and um, I really had a lot of fun with a philosophy major. And then, but I also did a psychology major. And then it was time to decide what subject to do honors in, and I decided to do honors in both, but to go to graduate school in psychology. But I was worried because it was hard to get into graduate school in psychology, so I thought I'd apply to graduate school in philosophy to back up. And so I applied to both, and unfortunately, I was accepted in both programs. Then I had to make the real decision, and I realized that at that time there were no jobs in philosophy, but there were jobs in psychology. So I thought, well, if I go in psychology, I'll get a job, and I'll never do philosophy again. But if I go to graduate school in philosophy, I'll get no job, and then I'll go back and go to graduate school in psychology, and at least I will about to do what I really enjoy doing. So I went to graduate school in philosophy in order not to get a job and I say, Oh, I got one and I've been doing <laughs> philosophy ever since. So that's the actual story. And um I really do you're right, I really do love it. It's I can't imagine anything more enjoyable to do with my life. And I love and it,
1: it so comes through in, in your writings in, in in the course that I so much enjoyed. Uh it so comes through. You you have a great depth of knowledge regarding the various traditions that have historically defined the meaning of life. So to, you know, kind of provide our listening audience with just a flavor of the differences held by many regarding what I think is the most important subject any of us can turn our attention to, I'd like to begin with a bit of a tour, if that's okay with you. So if we may... Let's start with a classical Greek world and the ideas that we've inherited from men like Aristotle. Now, correct me if I'm mm-hmm. wrong, but for Aristotle, form and function were closely related. So, goodness, he reasoned, was an aspect of the function of man. And that, uh, that's kind of difficult to see how he intuited that, but, but further, <laughs> One could not experience a truly meaningful life without a strong connection to others. So how do you see these ideas playing out in today's technological world, of virtual, this and that, anonymity and distance and and what have you?
4: I actually think it's very important. Um, I think that the, the the quick summary you offered of some Aristotelian ideas was a very good one. For Aristotle, the question. What makes her life meaningful begins with the question, what are we here for? And for Aristotle, we're here um, in order to flourish as human beings, in order to develop our capacities as human beings, and in order to develop them in concert with those around us. As he argued, human beings are essentially political animals. We're the kinds of things who are designed to live with others. Now, You mentioned contemporary technology, and when I think about contemporary technology and the kind of complicated life we have, so right now here I am in Singapore, halfway around the world, talking to you through um, a a technological device, and our words are being broadcast through technological devices. People often do this kind of reflex lament about how technology isolates us, about how, how it dehumanizes our life, and so forth. And it certainly can. I mean, we can certainly use technologies to isolate ourselves and to dehumanize ourselves. But technology can also be a tremendously connecting and humanizing. Um, device as well. It allows us to speak to one another right now. It allows us to communicate with um, your listeners as I kind of look out of my window in Singapore and see lights on in people's houses. It enables people to sit up late at night and talk um, in ways that they might not have otherwise. And remember, we can isolate ourselves and dehumanize ourselves without much technology at all. We've done that, you know, with prisons and with failed families and wars and famines and things like that through most of uh, human existence. So I guess I don't think that whether we're surrounded by technology or not is the real issue when we ask, are we able to lead happy, flourishing lives? The real question to ask is, is, have we structured our lives, whether through technological devices or just through social systems or through our own network of friendships, in ways that allow us to contribute meaningfully to the lives of others and allow us to learn from others around us. If we do that, we're going to have pretty good lives, devices or not.
1: That's a little bit of what you're doing right now, staying up till 3 a.m. in a worldwide broadcast in this technological environment as you described it. So, one of my favorite stories that you tell, I think begs us to examine the meaning of our lives and and i kind of put this in context because when i was working on finishing my graduate uh, studies there was a, a a period i mean i was a slow student i guess a period of a little over 10 years where i was a practicing criminalist and during that period of time i ran lie detection tests and supervised investigation those kinds of things and mm-hmm. you know there was always this question uh, you know what what how do you find the spiritual place in life when what you're doing is less than love? Now, I mean, of course, you can define it and say, you know, um, I'm doing this because of love of my fellow man, so we're sorting out the bad guys. But when you're actually doing it and, and, and you know, you're, you're actually, you know, cuffing people and and dealing with that kind of stuff, it uh that's not what's in your mind. So one of my favorite stories I think that kind of that clarified this for me is the story of Arjuna, where Krishna informs mm-hmm. Arjuna of duty and discipline and teaches a form of detachment. Will you flesh this story out and relate it to you know a meaning in our contemporary lives?
4: Yeah, that's such a complicated story of course as well, because it's a story of um, critical decisions, critical choices, and it's a story about ego involvement and and the involvement of affect and emotion. So, you know, to set the scene, Arjun is the general of a large army about to fight a momentous battle, and... Unfortunately, the battle is against um, other members of his own family and, and their warriors, so it's a kind of family civil war in the history of the most dysfunctional family that's ever lived in world literature. And um, Arjuna takes his chariot to the center of the battlefield and surveys this, uh, this field with two factions of his own family arrayed against them and decides that this whole thing is just not a good idea kingdoms aren't worth fighting for, they're not worth destroying families for, he doesn't want to lead all, all of this bloodshed, he just like to call the whole thing off. Um, and, but it turns out his charioteer is, is Krishna, who's a major divinity in this case, and when you find out your charioteer is actually God, you kind of pay attention to what he has to say, and um, Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita uh, tells Arjuna to, you know, pick up your damn bow and fight. Um, that you've got a job to do here, you've got a duty, there's people counting on you, you have a role in life, and it's not about you. It's not about how sad you are about this. It's not about your emotional investment in this. When you've got a role in a social system, when you've got um, a a life that's been constructed, um, sometimes you just have to do what you have to do. And it can't be with an investment in how that's going to feel for you. It can't be an investment in whether this is going to make you happy or sad. It sometimes simply has to be a recognition of what your job is in the situation and what life calls for. And when you're a warrior like Arjuna is, that means life calls for fighting. Um, If you're a lifeguard, it means life calls for diving into that cold water and saving the drowning child. If you're a doctor, it means life calls you to get up in the middle of the night and deal with somebody who's ill. Um, And if you're a policeman, it means life might call upon you to intervene in some difficult situations and would rather not be present. Um, Life often calls us to do this, and oftentimes our response is, oh my God, do I really want to do this? Um, Where the message of the Gita is that's the wrong response. The wrong response isn't, do I really want to do this? The right response isn't, do I really want to do this? The right response is, what do I need to do? And the the Gita kind of calls upon us to ask that that question in a disinterested way. What's my duty right now, rather than what do I want to do? And I think that's really a a very deep kind of message, because one of the ways that we can effectively trivialize our own lives is by always approaching situations by asking, gee, what do I really want to do? As though life is a matter of walking into a gelateria, and our question is just, "What what flavor do we want today?" Um, rather than walking into a, an absolutely serious situation with human implications, and asking, uh, "What can, what ought I do right now?" And I think that's what makes the Gita such a powerful book. Yeah, I, I, I
1: totally concur, and I love how you tell the the story in the course. Uh, they, you know there's there, there's a a real message' it's something I, I hadn't heard before but a, a repeated message a repeated theme that uh you keep you brought up several times in your course it has to do with you know you you can aim that arrow uh but once you let it go the, you know it's out of your control it's just in in and, and, That's and right. that I mean, that is basically, basically, I guess, the underlying message behind if this is the role that you have in life, these kinds of things really aren't in your control. Have I got that right?
4: I think that's right. Um, It's another piece of the Gita, which is a a rich text, of course. An enormous amount of our lives um, are out of our control. We often find ourselves taking credit for things that, we really didn't do. I mean, people who might be, say, for instance, very um, athletically gifted or might be musically gifted um, can't take credit for those gifts. They chose their grandparents wisely, um, and you know their genetic endowment was uh, was important. Or if we find ourselves in a situation where we are we're blessed with the kinds of infrastructure that enable us to do things that we're happy with doing, very often that infrastructure was put there by by others. Um, oftentimes it can go the other way around. We blame ourselves for things uh, that we can't do, or we obsess about things that are outside of our control, that um, are in the hands of others, that are in the hands of you know forces that, that, over which we've got no control at all. And there is a lot in our lives that is within our control. Obviously, part of what the Gita suggests is you focus on that. You focus on what you can do and what you can control and what you can achieve, not on what you've done in the past. Um, not on what somebody else needs to do, but you know, the word in the in, in the Sanskrit is sva one's own duty, one's own um, one's own actions. And the fo- if we are su- successful in focusing on what we can actually do, and not obsessing on you know that over which we have no control, we can lead much more effective lives.
1: You know, one of the things that I loved in your course, um, well, I love the whole course. I mean, bottom line is I I, I could be a walking advertisement for you any day and, and for this course. But you chose lame deer to represent a larger view of some of the American Indians. So my question is why lame deer? And how important do you think his analogy of the green frog skins is to understanding the meaning of our lives, especially in an era where we're, You know, so oriented to consumption.
4: Yeah. Okay, why lame gear? There's a kind of um, boring answer to that, and that is that somebody put that book in my hand at one point. And (laughs) um, I read it initially with some some reluctance because it it just didn't sound like something that I was going to be um, all that interested in. And I was totally taken by it. I thought it was an absolutely staggeringly, uh, profound and, and also hilarious book and a book with such, uh, written with such warmth and immediacy. You know, I talked, we talked earlier in the, in the evening about the, um, about summertime and that kind of combination of intimacy and optimism. And those characteristics are, are there in Lane Deer's book too. It's a very intimate talk, um, but also remarkably optimistic. Um, so the Green Frogskins is this um, story of Lame Deer imagining the Battle of the Little Bighorn um, and imagining what soldiers might have been thinking as their the the money they had just been paid the Green Frogskins, or his name for for uh, for dollar bills, um, as they kind of flew into the air and 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 were lost and thinking, gee, there must have been some who thought, damn, I'm not going to get to spend my pay, all that money going to waste, Um, and using that as a way of focusing um, both on on death, which I think is a phenomenally important topic on which to focus, um, and on the obsession with um, money and commodification. Because for Lame Deer, the green frog skin or the dollar bill stands as a kind of... um, stark stark metaphor for commodification it allows us to think far more obsessively about an instrument that is the instrumentality of money than the actual goods that we care about in life and it also focuses on the idea of death um, because one of the themes I try to address in the course is that maybe the most important This is is
1: contacttalkradio.com Consciousness in action Hello? Yeah, please continue. That's a technical glitch.
4: The computer is being (laughs) reset
1: now. I'm sorry, Dr. Garfield.
4: It's it's the moment of our death. And so Lane Deer is saying, look, at the moment of your death, you need to be focusing on the important things in your life. And as you prepare for death, you want to be thinking about your life as a whole and not obsessed with these kind of trivial matters. And it's also, as I said, about commodification, about the Whole question about what we care about in the first place is that is the mere instrument like money, or is it fundamental human values? And um, his comment that a lot of our life is directed towards distracting us from what's important and focusing us on on what's trivial. And I think that aspect of contemporary life. Earlier, we talked about the kind of um, ambivalence of technology and the fact that technology itself isn't such a isn't such a terrible thing. What is a terrible thing um, is a life that is. Um Devoted to distraction and social systems devoted to distracting us and uh turning us uh, from human beings into consumers, uh turning us from citizens into uh, things to be manipulated by advertisements and so forth and that kind of distraction and commodification of life is lanedeer's target, and I think he he aims at that target pretty successfully
1: i do, i do too you 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 just you touched on the subject of death and and that reminds me of course of the story um a tall story, story which you use to really bring home if you will this question of the importance of uh of how we live and, and what the meaning of of life is do you want to flesh that story out and share it with our audience
4: well um of course it's a tremendous story and I wouldn't try to upstage Tolstoy by, by telling his story, but it, the, the story is the death of Ivan Ilyich. And it's the story of a very successful um, guy, an upper middle class guy, a judge, uh, with a lot of friends and a nice family and kids going to good schools and beautiful wife and nice house and, you know, totally successful career, um, who develops an illness. And uh, we followed him um, and went through the progress of his illness uh, to his death. And I'm going to ask you, you,
1: Professor Garfield. I'm going to ask you to hold it right there because we are going to get kicked out by the computer. We have a hard break here. When we come back from the break, let please pick it up from where we are. I apologize for the. technical issues today listen uh, no all problem. of you out there uh, i want to thank you for joining us today if you're not already in our chat room now is a great time to get there so just go to provocative com forward slash chat and choose the chat room button near the top of the page there's some real heavy dialogue going on and uh, you don't want to miss out on it we'll be right back after this brief station break
0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
1: Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Jay Garfield about the meaning of life according to some important perspective from the world's great intellectual traditions. Uh, Professor Garfield, before we jump back to the Tolstoy story, that was your second choice of music, All That We Let In by the Indigo Girls. Why that song?
4: song? Gosh, I mean, it's such a gorgeous song. I must confess to being an Indigo Girls groupie. Um, I think their, their music is glorious. Their harmonies and songwriting can bring tears to my eyes. But partly because their lyrics are always so intelligent, so perceptive, and often just terribly profound. So we look at the lyric that you just played there, dust in our eyes, our own boots kicked up. the Calling our attention to the idea that most of the difficulties and problems that we encounter in life or, um the, res- the result of things we ourselves do. Um, not always, um, in fact, almost never intentionally, but the fact that you've kicked up the dust um, doesn't mean that um, it isn't, isn't something that you've done. But then the wonderful line shortly after that, you may not see it when it's sticking to your skin, but we're better off for all that we let in, um, that really emphasizes the need to lead life with an open heart and with an open mind, and that shutting experience out, shutting others out, shutting opportunities out, opportunities for learning, opportunities for growth, is is never a productive way to lead one's life. Um, Letting things in, even when they're uncomfortable, even when they're sticking to your skin, um, leaves us better off. And uh, there's a lot one can learn from that song. And as the song and I advise your listeners not just to listen to the opening lyric, but to listen to the entire song. It's a um it's a glorious and wise piece of songwriting.
1: Philosophy, philosophy, philosopher. You are indeed in love with Sophia. You eat it, <laughs> drink it, and listen to it. All right, sir, back to the story. Uh you were telling us sure. uh go ahead.
4: So we follow Ivan Ilyich through his decline and and, and to his death, and there's a lot, of course, that Tolstoy does with this regarding um, issues like family relationships, emotional relationships, but the central theme is the denial of mortality and our general failure to acknowledge our own mortality and the significance of our own death. And to me, one of the, the most poignant moments in... The entire, uh, the entire book is when, um, Ivan Ilyich is kind of recalling his education and contemplating that syllogism that we all learn in first year logic. All men are mortal. Socrates is mortal. Uh, Socrates is a man, so Socrates is mortal. And he says, that was about Socrates, not about me. Nobody said that I had to die. Sure, everybody dies, but that doesn't mean that I die. And it really encapsulates the ability that we have to take general knowledge and to take abstract knowledge about our own lives and to manage to ignore it completely and fail to um, really internalize and to take seriously what we know to be true. And Tolstoy's, um, one of Tolstoy's messages in Ivan is. Again, the most important thing about us is that we've got finite lives, that we're going to die. And denying that amounts to denying our own humanity. And that we end up going through a great deal of our lives denying that. You know, there's a retail chain that always brings a smile to my eyes, Forever 21, um, that encapsulates the, I hope they're not one of your advertisers, encapsulates (laughs) the whole thing. Um, I'm going to be Forever 21, I'm never going to age, I'm going to live forever. Um, and honestly, I think that one of the things that's profound about Tolstoy's book is he puts his finger on the fact that even though none of us reflectively believe that we're going to live forever, we all live as though um, we're convinced that we're going to live forever, and that makes it very difficult to actually understand who we are, because who we are are very finite mortal beings, and to deny that is just to deny our own existence
1: you know i, I think there's a, an argument to be made that a good deal of the trivializing that is it, to use your word that is done in our lives is done in order to avoid recognizing that uh, we are mortal That's right. all right sir <clears throat> you know i've often referred to some of nietzsche's writings uh, uh, especially those where he instructs us to remain responsible and authentic how possible do you think that goal really is for our society today? When we, you know, we're inundated on a twenty-four-seven basis, as you pointed out already, with propaganda and sound bites that become the method of the reasoning reasoning for the masses.
4: Yeah. Look, it's hard, but it's also um, it's also easy. And I mean, I know that sounds paradoxical and goofy, but. Um, we, we, we live in a, an environment, a political and um, economic environment that, as we've been saying, is designed in many ways to distract us um, because we're kind of useful to a lot of people when we're distracted, um, when we're consuming or when we're not paying attention um, to what's going on around us. Um, and distraction is even sometimes promoted as mental health. Um, in ways that I find very disturbing, Uh, just to to recur to the theme of death for a moment, and and then I'll come back to Nietzsche and authenticity. Uh Um, I'm sometimes amazed by the following phenomenon. Suppose that you knew somebody, um, suppose a friend of yours reported on a friend of theirs, and she said, you know, Jane thinks about death every day. She's constantly thinking about the fact that she's going to die. She's always preparing for death and she's always, you know, this is a thought that occurs to her every day that her life is finite and she's worried that she may not have enough time to accomplish her tasks and she's aware that people around her are going to die and so forth. And if you're listening to this, you think, my God, the woman's depressed. She needs psychotherapy or something like that. And when we react like that and we think that awareness of death is a pathology rather than insight, we valorize distraction. Um, rather than pathologize it. And I rather think that that's the healthy person and somebody who lives their life constantly repressing and suppressing knowledge of their own mortality is the person who's in serious need of therapy. Now that's about authenticity. This is why, why I think that it's, it's relevant. Nietzsche, um, calls us to a kind of authentic confrontation with who we are and calls us to avoid distraction. And on the one hand, that's difficult because there's so many people working overtime and very skilled people working very effectively overtime to distract us. Um, On the other hand, um, the ability for somebody else to distract us really requires our collaboration. Um, We can't hand over responsibility for our own attention to those around us and complain that we're distracted because of what somebody else did. It's in the end our choice to pay attention to that message, Um, our choice to allow our cognitive um, functioning to be dictated by others, our choice to put our affective lives in the hands of advertisers, and that's something we can always resist. All that requires is a moment of reflection. I mean that takes us back to the Bhagavad Gita as well, right? It just means that at moments when there are decisions to be made, including just decisions about what it's important to think about or to attend to or to care about, to remember that that decision is ours. And the, the decision to allow oneself to be distracted is a decision we make to hand our lives over to somebody else, not the passive acceptance
1: of somebody else's power over us you know we have interviewed a number of uh, hospice uh, physicians on this show and and talked a good deal about uh, death the dying process life after death for that matter and whatever evidence there might be for that and a common denominator that i it, it, I've, I've heard from everyone uh we could really boil down to something like this the people that suffer the most in the in the the last days, the last hours, are the people that haven't given any thought to the dying process or to the to the fact that they're mortal. Uh, they well illustrate the struggle that Tolstoy, uh, you know, t- shares in his story. It is the denial that creates the pain, and we're talking about, you know, in many instances, genuine physical pain. There can be two patients in a hospice with the same conditions, health conditions, maybe both dying of cancer, and one um, needs little to no medication, and the other, uh, you can't provide them with enough in order to give them comfort. I do think that your insight, you know, regarding the importance of viewing death as a healthy um, process, I don't think that we can actually view our own lives in any real way uh, or the, the meaning of those lives or how we use the days and the moments in those lives without recognizing the limited nature of them. Would you concur
4: with that? Absolutely. Um, Nietzsche makes the point that we need to think of our lives in a, in a way as literary objects, as, as object of art. And good stories have a beginning, a middle, and an the end. They don't go on forever. And uh, a good life has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It doesn't go on forever. Even bad ones don't go on forever, for that matter. Um, but to fail to recognize that is to fail to value the time that we have. It's to fail to understand who we are. And it's to fail to plan intelligently and to anticipate um, what's absolutely inevitable. And um, it's, it's kind of hard to wrap one's mind around the rationality of, of not thinking about that and not thinking about it regularly. it's As I say, the most important thing about us is our mortality, and peculiarly, it's the thing that most people spend the least time thinking about and, as I say, even pathologize um, thinking
1: about. Right, and ironically, you know, uh, at the same time, maybe because of Thanatos urges, they're out there doing crazy nutty things, uh, you know, testing uh, the limits of that mortality, uh, and doing so unconsciously, or That's right. what have you. Listen, um, Immanuel Kant's ideas somewhat mirror Nietzsche's, don't they? In the sense that Kant insisted on personal responsibility, um, and, well, and, and anticipate, a genuine life
4: mirror. Uh, please, it's, let's get the chronology right. They anticipate, not mirror. Okay. Um, well yeah, all right.
1: Yeah, I should say um, it the other way around.
4: You're right. Nietzsche, actually. Okay. Good. Uh, yeah. And it's interesting because Nietzsche is generally and appropriately recognized as you know one of the progenitors of a kind of post-modernity and a reaction against modernity. And Kant, of course, is again carefully and, and, and accurately represented as one of the great um, architects of European modernity. And indeed, it's also true that. Nietzsche's work is is highly critical of a lot of Kant's work, but it's and so people often emphasize not the continuities but the, um, the the radical differences between Kant and Nietzsche. But you're right, absolutely right, that there are also very important continuities between Kant and Nietzsche, and one of them is an emphasis on individual responsibility. Um, Kant is um, insistent that we move into of human beings when we take responsibility for our own views, our own education, our own political activity, our own thought, our own actions. And Nietzsche picks that up much later and talks about taking that kind of responsibility and, you know, moving out of a kind of herd mentality as a uh, hallmark of authenticity. So where Kant's emphasizing maturity, Nietzsche's emphasizing authenticity, and on a lot of the same dimensions, I think that's absolutely right.
1: Now, you, you take a step, though, now, from both Kant and Nietzsche, and 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 you look at personal responsibility, and then you look at how Gandhi defined personal responsibility, mm-hmm. what a meaningful life was about. Uh, yeah. and, and 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 that seems to be... Like, you know, we went from something that was reasonable to something that may be, you know, really impossible or impractical. You know, share with us, unpack Gandhi's thinking about what a meaningful life demands of us.
4: Yeah, it demands a lot. Um, Gandhi probably expected more of himself and more of human beings quite generally than any of the uh, of the other people whose views I consider in my course, or any philosopher with whom I'm familiar, um, to Gandhi's credit, he really strove to live a life um, consistent with those expectations. Um, but it's also true he expected a great deal of others, and not everybody's is capable of leading that life. And you could really ask questions about whether Gandhi actually himself led the most successful life he could lead. On the other hand, you know, freeing a major country from colonial, um, colonial domination and um, bringing it into democracy um, and establishing a kind of respect for nonviolence that has persisted to the present day is quite an achievement. But Gandhi really argued that the only meaningful life is a life of total dedication to service, total dedication to the pursuit of truth, um, and one that really involves absolutely no concern uh, for one's own ego, one's own individual project. of
1: We already have quite a contrast we move from Aristotle and, and the social nature of life, and Aristotle liked his mm-hmm. parties and and his social yep. gatherings to a gandhi and, and a level of abstinence that for all intent and purposes uh, you know, it's just right. it 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 would take the ascetic order to uh, an extreme, uh, way beyond anything that I've ever read. They practice an unbelievable. That's right. How how does a human being look at all of these different views? And we haven't begun. I mean, we haven't covered them all. I'm going to ask you about some more. But how do we how do we look at these views and find some way to live? Honestly, authentically, and uh, with meaning and purpose in our life, how how would you suggest that? What have you done? Have you have you assembled an eclectic view, or?
4: Well, you know, I tend only to read and only to talk about and only to teach um, texts that I really love and learn from, and uh, that's just that's that's my personal preference. And all of the texts that you've mentioned and all of the texts I discuss in that course are texts from which I've learned a great deal. Of course, there's also tensions among them, and they they represent very different views. But there are also, in in each place, insights that can help one in different dimensions of one's life. You take somebody like Gandhi, and you can think of, of Gandhi as setting certain kinds of challenges, and certain kinds of ideal points, so that you say to yourself, if this is something I admire, if I admire somebody's ability to set his own needs and preferences aside for the welfare of others, and then I have to ask myself, to the extent that I'm not living up to that, can I do better on that dimension? Is there a kind of um, integrity that Gandhi demands uh, from which I'm falling off? And the answer to that is often yes, and we can often, if we often ask ourselves not what's the best we can do, that's sometimes maybe too demanding, but how can we do better on that dimension, that can be a help. Um, You know, life isn't always led in the pursuit or uh, or the expectation of perfection. It can often be led in the pursuit and the expectation of doing it better than we're doing now, And sometimes looking at the apex can um, at least give us the right direction. So many people are going to be tuning into the Winter Olympics soon. And some of them might even be people who uh, enjoy performing or, or participating in sports that are represented there. And just because they see somebody who can skate far better than they ever could, it shouldn't cause them despair and cause them to give up skating. They might want... It might lead them to examine their unskating and say, "I could do a little better. I could work a little harder," and um, and that can be useful. So we might turn to Gandhi in terms of integrity, in terms of our ability to um, to give up a little bit for the sake of others. But we might turn to Kant um, for lessons in a different kind of intellectual honesty and a public commitment. We might turn to Aristotle for Um, information or for ideas about how we can live better socially and moderate ourselves. Everybody can teach us something, but they don't all have to teach us the same thing.
1: You know, one of the uh, stories that you tell in the courses uh, gave me a perspective on um, a biblical story that for all intent and purposes Mm -hmm. is unique. It's, It's something I had never encountered um, and I and I've given biblical studies uh, a fair amount of my time. That of course is the story of Job. So now coming off of what you how you've just assembled this, um, we move to a story of uh, um, a very faithful person who's pursuing uh, with great diligence uh, what he sees to be the the right path, and. Uh, doing his very best, as you would say, to, uh, yes. to um, be uh, all that he can possibly be.
4: Uh, what mm-hmm. happens to Job? Uh, the universe doesn't exactly cooperate. Um, and, and Job is a, a profound story, and to a, a lot of people the most disturbing story in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and I think the most philosophically um, pregnant story. Because, of course, what the way that I, I think about Job, and there's so many different interpretations of Job, right? This is, this is also one of the signs of the greatness of the text. People have read it in so many different ways. and um, But the way that I see Job is that it's about one really simple idea. The universe is not built around you. And there's a hell of a lot that happens that is far outside of your control. Things that you cannot, um, you can neither understand um, nor that you deserve. We don't get what we deserve in life. We get what where where we where we happen to be. We get the consequences of the spatio-temporal location um, in which we find ourselves, and even our best efforts even our greatest virtue, might be necessary to lead a happy and rewarding life, but it's not sufficient. And Job also is important for teaching us a certain kind of compassion. It's not just that we ourselves don't get what we deserve. Nobody deserves to have horrible diseases, um, as Job does. Nobody deserves to endure the death of their children, as Job does. Um, None of us you know, deserve to lead lives of complete desperation and incomprehension. Professor Many Garfield
1: of once again I'm gonna I'm yep. gonna have to ask you to hold the story right there. We'll come back and we'll get what we just deserve from Professor Garfield okay. in just a minute. We hope you're enjoying our show with Professor Jay Garfield and our discussion about the meaning of life. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes and take your phone calls. Do please stay tuned.
3: Close your eyes. Imagine your goals and dreams. What's preventing you from accomplishing them? Most often we are our own worst enemies. I can't, I'm not good enough. It's time to reprogram that inner dialogue. Replace all those negative self images with, I'm good, I am powerful, I can do anything. Eldon Taylor's InnerTalk patented subliminal technology does just that. Researched at numerous universities such as Stanford and by governments such as Mexico and Germany, InterTalk has repeatedly been proven effective at changing your self-talk. Stop imagining your goals and make them a reality today. Visit www.intertalk.com. That's I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K.com. Intertalk.com.
0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. You can join in the conversation by calling 877-230-3062. And for our international callers, you can join us by dialing your country code and 425-644-5620. You can also participate by entering the chat room at eldentaylor.com forward slash chat. You can email Eldon from anywhere in the world by sending an email to eldon at eldontaylor.com. Now, back to the show.
1: back if you just joined us we're speaking with professor jay garfield about the meaning of life we'll take your phone calls during this half hour so if you have questions of our guests either give us a call or submit your questions in our chat room ravinder and her and andrea uh, actually ravinder andrea and Jana. the whole team's here today are there to put your questions forward okay professor garfield before we get back to joe that was your third choice of music uh, a piece called February by Dar Williams why this music sir
4: mm-hmm. well of course it's terribly relevant to job and I think you chose you chose well um, because February is about dementia and it's about um, the descent into dementia and the need for um, compassion and the recognition of the existence of a person and a consciousness and a set of concerns and relationships even when we're diminished and um, forces us again to think about the end of our lives not only in terms of the termination of our lives but in terms of the fact that we change as human beings and there will be points in our lives when we do not have the capacities that we have uh, when we're young and strong and that doesn't make people any less, um, any less human beings. Um, so it's, it's a very profound, it's a very profound story being told in February. And uh, again, Dar Williams is one of those people who reliably brings tears to my eyes. Um, a gorgeous songwriter and a profound human being.
1: You, uh, you know, you're the philosopher, so of course you know there's no such thing as a question uh, that doesn't have a statement in it or a statement without a question. When you explain the impact of this music, it seems that you identify with it. Is that fair?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, as I said earlier, I, I read texts and think about texts that teach me something. And I usually listen to music that teaches me something. And, um, you know, people like, people like Dar Williams, people like the Indigo Girls can uh, teach us things in their songs. And it's worth it. Uh, that mean something and they're beautiful songwriters and they also uh, have glorious voices that
1: counts all right well let's let's get back to job tell us let's get back to job yeah the the universe just doesn't cooperate I think that's where we were the
4: universe that's right and as I said on the one hand it forces us to rethink you know our own lives and again how much control we have over what we what happened to us, um, which is minimal, and how much um, credit we can take for what happens to us, which is often minimal, the um, simple unfairness and 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 brute um, power of existence, but also it requires us, and this is what takes us to February, um, forces us to recognize that that's true of everybody around us as well. Um, People don't voluntarily um, endure what they endure, become who they become, um, and suffer the hardships, um, inner and outer, that they suffer, and, you know, it can be very easy sometimes to be very moralistic about people who are less fortunate than us, uh, people who suffer in terrible ways, and it's always worth remembering that, you know, when you look at somebody for whom life is going badly, um, that's Job. And when things are going badly for us, that's Job. And that means it's not about moral desert. And when things are going well for us, that's the other thing to remember. At the end of it, at the beginning of Job and at the end of Job, things go very well for Job. And that's not his doing any more than the terrible stuff in the middle. Um, That's, I mean, in in the story, that's the work of God. But if we think about it, you know, more broadly and more metaphorically, that's just the work of the universe and the stuff that's outside of our control, and it—Job uh, is one of those those, those um, stories that forces us to decenter ourselves and to decenter others from narratives, and to realize that we're um, chapters in in books written by somebody else.
1: Very powerful interpretation. Very powerful interpretation. I'd encourage everybody to uh, review. Uh your interpretation of the Book of Job. You you do a lot of writing uh, about uh, writing and teaching about Buddhist teachings. They seem to dominate uh, much of your work. So wh- what is the meaning of life through the Buddhist teachings? Uh, how would you contrast that with what we've discussed up until now? Well, I, I
4: wouldn't so much contrast as um, to say that the Buddhist tradition uh, gives us certain ways of putting things and certain ways of thinking through life that, um, that are well worth bringing into conversation. So um, the book that I'm writing now is called Engaging Buddhism, Why Western Philosophy Should Pay Attention to, to Buddhist Philosophy. Um, and, you know, the, the Buddhist tradition sometimes picks things up from different angles and um, emphasizes different things. Buddhism tends to place a, a strong emphasis on um, impermanence, on selflessness and essencelessness, on um, the role of human practices and conventions and our, our human um, cognitive and sensory faculties in constructing the world that we live in, in which we live. Um, and um, so it forces us to think more in terms of interdependence than independence, more in terms of impermanence than permanence, and um, those are all useful ways to think. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very big philosophical tradition, um, and a very extensive philosophical tradition, and a lot of what I've been working on in the past few decades is really um, trying to dislodge what I see as the pervasive Eurocentrism of professional philosophy, especially in the West, but not exclusively in the West. Even in Asia, where I am now, there's a great deal of Eurocentrism in, in philosophy as a result of the, the legacy of colonialism. And philosophy is one of those disciplines in which many traditions in the world, um, Indian, Chinese, Japanese, African, Native American, have a lot to contribute. And um, so this project of Buddhism, for me, is one way of trying to, again, decenter and and... Uh, launched the presumption that it's only to Europe um, that we look for insight.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, but Buddhism uh, obviously uh, was spawned, if that's a usable term, in India, and uh, then, you know, uh, migrated, if you will, to China, where it grew mm-hmm. and became very strong, but it, it nearly died out in India, um it, it very it, small... did,
4: and it go ahead it, it of course is returning to india which is interesting as well um but um the destruction of buddhism in india was um a, a direct result of invasions by afghans turks persians the great muslim invasions um of the 9th 10th 11th centuries um And the reason that Buddhism was such a kind of um, soft target is that by that time um, the Buddhist world had become focused on these very large institutions, big monastic universities, monasteries, um, and very centralized institutions. And so when the invaders came, the, the targets were focused and easy to destroy. And from uh, an Islamic perspective, Buddhism looked pretty bad. It looked like a kind of heathen idolatry, and these folks were uh, religious fanatics, and they were determined to um, to destroy that. And so they were able very quickly to uh, destroy a lot of the infrastructure that made uh, that made Buddhism work, to kill a lot of people and to uh, burn a lot of books. Um, fortunately for the rest of the world, by that time. Buddhism had migrated both into China and into Tibet, and in particular the the migration into Tibet preserved in in Tibetan a lot of the texts that were then to be burned and lost in Sanskrit. And so the legacy of India lives on, but it it, it lives on um, in other places and in other languages. Um, As Buddhism spreads around the world, it's spreading back into India, back partly from Tibet through the Tibetan exile, um, and through also the the politically Indian but ethnically Tibetan regions of the Himalayas, but also from the kind of modern revivals of Buddhism in Sri Lanka and Burma that came back in through, um, ironically through colonialism, um, back into India. And then through the work of Dr. Ambedkar, uh, the architect of the Indian Constitution, who was uh, himself an untouchable and converted to Buddhism, bringing a lot of um, Indian Hindu untouchables along with him. So we're kind of witnessing a multidimensional resurgence of Buddhism in India. But the elimination of Buddhism in India was, was quite dramatic, very quick, um, and uh, directly
1: attributable to very particular political forces. So, so I mean, and my point is the Eurocentrism, the bias of, uh, Uh, regarding Buddhism wasn't just Eurocentrism as much as, I mean, it was seen for a good deal of time as a heathen religion. I I mean, maybe I'm dating myself, but I can remember being in elementary school looking at textbooks where they were talking about the starving Indian people um, who refused to kill their cattle because ridiculously they saw them as and you know this kind of a story so uh, it is that kind of uh, prejudice I, I think that uh, gained the strength that it did that uh, that contaminated our understanding of Buddhist faith uh, for a long long time If I got that right or have I taken too well, many I'm not, I'm not sure of that I mean
4: for one thing um, the, the folks who don't want to kill cows in India, Were largely Hindus and, and not right. Buddhists. And right. so part of the Orientalism and the, um, the ethnocentrism that you're seeing is, is it just comes in the kind of conflation of all of the Asian traditions um, into one, which, you know, the effect of a certain kind of distance, there's just not enough parallax to, to resolve very profound differences. Um, Or do we realize that, you know, by that time, Buddhism is dominant in places like Korea, Taiwan, uh, Burma, uh, Sri Lanka, Japan, and, you know, other places where we don't have uh, those phenomena. Um, So there's partly that, and of course, Buddhism, um, the the Buddhist religion uh, being um, atheistic has never been one that has been... um, Kindly regarded by uh, uh, theistic religious practitioners in the West, for sure. Um, but honestly, um, when we look at the way that philosophy as a discipline um, has been constructed in in the West academically, it's not just Buddhism that's ignored. It's the Orthodox Indian uh, philosophical traditions, which are extremely rich, and we think of Buddhism as a heterodox tradition, uh, the Jain tradition, African philosophies ignored, Native American philosophies ignored, um, a lot of even Islamic philosophies ignored, even though the transmission of Greek philosophy um, into Europe and in the Middle Ages was entirely mediated by um, Arab and Persian philosophers. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I mean, this is just true and embarrassing. In most philosophy departments, in most colleges and universities, um, no non-European philosophy is taught at all. You couldn't get away with that in a literature department or a history department or an art history department, but we often get away with that in philosophy, and we shouldn't, so that when people will talk about a course in, say, called ancient philosophy. All that they teach is ancient Greek philosophy. Or, of course, in modern philosophy, all they teach is modern European philosophy. And um, most non-Western philosophy, when it's taught in the Western um, academic world, is taught either in area studies departments, you know, Asian studies or African studies or something, Native American studies, or it's taught in religion departments. And when you go to professional conferences of philosophers, and you look at the panels and the talks, it's all European philosophy almost, and most of the work, say, in Buddhist philosophy or in Indian philosophy, um, even African philosophy is happening at places like religious studies conferences. Um, when I began working in Buddhist philosophy, and I still work very much in Western philosophy as well, by the way, but when I began doing research in Buddhist philosophy, I had friends who said, Oh, you're leading philosophy and joining religious studies? And these were people who would be quite happy treating, for instance, Descartes' proofs of the existence of God or Aquinas' proofs of the existence of God as philosophy, but who regarded um, investigations into logic or epistemology by Indians or Tibetans as religion. And that just reflects a very, very deep prejudice um, that kind of reserves rationality for the European tradition and um just blindly assumes that it's not present in other places. Um, and so a lot of my work is just devoted to dislodging that, and my work in Buddhist philosophy is an instrument to doing that. I honestly think that um, philosophy is something that is uh, a world heritage and not just the European heritage.
1: I love it. If anybody can get it done, it'll be you. Uh, I, I don't think most people, most Americans actually, um, that are running around quoting the Buddha and so on and so forth actually realize that Buddhism is an is a practice of atheism. Um, I, I think they tend to see it differently, um, at least based yep. on my own interactions. All right, now it's easy to... No, it's not easy. Obviously, you have shown me it is not easy to be a philosopher, at least of your guild. I love philosophy. I would have majored in philosophy, but I couldn't see a future in it, and I unfortunately didn't trust my finger guide like you did. It has been an avocation of mine, and if I'm reading something for pleasure, it's always philosophy. But my point is this. As a philosopher, you can refer to, you know, the works of Mill or the works of Gandhi or the works of Hume, Uh, but as a human being now, I'm going to come to you as a human being. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is Provocative Enlightenment, so we ask some tough questions, and I'd love your insight on this. One of your specialty areas is the philosophy of mind, and as you know, as what we say, What fires together, wires together. As such, religious activities can produce the changes in the brain that we talked about at the top of the show. We can wire hatred, however, just as easily as we can wire compassion. Now, some religions seem to do that. I mean, um, we see less compassionate activities, maybe at least out in the public scene, then we see these religiously motivated suicide bombings. There is a lot of ritual involved in this. Now, my question, Professor, is this. Should society actively seek to eliminate religious thoughts, religious faiths that promote this idea, and if so,
4: how? Gosh, that's a hard one. And you, you are right. You're asking hard questions, and hard questions are the ones we should ask. Um, there's a was a, a wonderful public talk um, given a number of years ago by um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and he was asked about religious violence, and of course, he's a religious leader. And he responded, he said, you know, I think that if we look at things objectively, on the whole, we have to say religion has done far more harm than good, and that the human race might well be better off without it, because it creates just a lot more conflict and unhappiness um, than than it creates happiness. And, of course, then he said, but, of course, I have a kind of personal interest in the industry, and so um, I'm going to keep it going, <laughs> But uh, you know, his kind of normal humor. Um, and I think there was... You know, there's a great deal of wisdom to, to that reflection. And it's worth pointing out that every religious tradition that humanity's ever thrown up um, has managed to create uh, a certain amount of havoc, violence, and um, unhappiness. So, you know, people often will point to their favorite particular target of, of the moment, but human history is not kind to the record of any major religion. Um, on, on those grounds um, leave that part aside and then ask the question so if there's so much um, so much difficulty caused by religions uh, would we be better off without them Well one question of course is to ask what the whole cost benefit equation is because right now what we're focusing on are the, um, the deleterious effects but surely religions have done a lot for humanity as well um, and people forget about that. Um, a lot of the philosophical traditions we've been talking about, the Western philosophical tradition has grown up in the kind of cradle of um, the Abrahamic religions, um, Islam, um, Christianity, and Judaism. The um, Buddhist tradition we've just been talking about grew up in a religious in a religious context. Um, even, you know, fairly secular-looking philosophical traditions like Confucianism grew up in in ritual uh, context as well, and so a lot of the thought that is most humanizing for us, and don't, you know, then we can turn to art, we can turn to music, um, a lot of things, that comes from uh, these religious institutions, so there's there's a cost-benefit analysis that's probably fairly complicated um, in that respect. But then you ask the question, should we do something publicly to... um, eliminate the aspects of religion that lead to these conflicts. So, I find myself in an interesting situation right now. I spent a great deal of my time, of my life, growing up in the United States and then in Australia in countries that have a very strong uh, tradition of free expression in, um, in religion and in speech. And I'm now, at least for the last few months, living in a new country in Singapore, Um, in which um, religious expression and speech is restricted somewhat for exactly those reasons. So people here in Singapore, for instance, uh, value harmony, peace, stability, prosperity, and just plain getting along um, to an enormous degree. And so they don't allow divisive uh, religious talk. They don't allow people to um, get on the air and to say extremely derogatory things about other religious traditions or to valorize one tradition over another. Um, they allow free practice of religion, but they don't want people to be um, to be divisive. Now, when you come at that as a kind of free speech absolutist American, like I grew up, you sort of say, but wait a minute, people should be free to say and, and do whatever they want. And then they kind of ask the question, yeah, but shouldn't people be free to live in, peace and stability and amity with their neighbors as well and those may not be consistent goals um, and so I'm beginning as I kind of watch this rather stable and amicable society in which I can sit down at tables with Muslims Buddhists and Christians um, all at the same table having lunch and nobody is uh, nobody fighting and thinking gee maybe a certain kind of moderation of Public rhetoric um, isn't entirely a bad thing, but I haven't finished thinking these things through.
1: <laughs> and I, and you know, I wish we had another few hours to pursue this, because the very next thing I would go to is, you know, John Stuart Mill's insistence on the importance of privacy and liberty, and I'm sure then we would... Well, at any rate, it has been wonderful to have you on the show. Please, in about 30 seconds, tell everybody how they can learn more about you.
4: Well, um, you can always read the stuff that I write. Um, It's pretty easy to find. I'm maintaining a little trashy website right now called jgarfield.org, which has got some of my recent papers and some of my work in progress. You can see some of what I'm teaching and stuff like that. Um, But, you know, I've I've written enough stuff that's out there in the public domain. Um, You can buy my books. You can read my articles. You can uh, listen to the great courses, um, lectures, and you get some sense of who I am. Um, and you can always write to me. It's easy to I'm, I'm easy to contact, and I tend to respond to my email. All right, I'm gonna. I'm, we
1: are out of time, but I cannot endorse uh, Professor Garfield's work more than to tell you, read his books, go to his website, uh, get the Great Course. This it, it is the premier. I'm sorry, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. Until next time, wherever you are in the world, I want you to remember this. Believing in yourself always matters.
0: Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.